welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Jasmine Banks, who is the executive director of Uncoke My Campus, a national campaign that investigates and exposes how right-wing billionaire Charles Koch and his Koch network influence education, both in higher ed and K-12. Many of you who follow the podcast already care about racial, social, economic, and environmental justice, care about multiracial democracy, but do we always know the hidden influences of the agenda that opposes all of this, utilizing right-wing think tanks, research, and targeted campaigns? Jasmine explains what the Koch Network is and how, through multi-million dollar contributions, they promote ideas and policies that suppress voting rights, question climate change while actually advancing it, deny the reality of COVID, attack workers' rights, and are behind the widespread efforts to ban any discussion of slavery and systemic racism in schools by attacking critical race theory and the 1619 Project. She shares that Koch helped fund the January 6th attempted coup and that multiracial democracy is truly at stake. Uncoke My Campus has released reports of how the Koch network carries out its agenda, and those reports are available on their website. Jasmine explains how Uncoke My Campus works with students who organize to challenge the Koch agenda. She explains how the ruling of Citizens United treated corporations like people and how there is basically unchecked financial influence corporations have over elections and legislation. Policy folks often say we need to follow the money, and Jasmine does a phenomenal job in breaking this down. Jasmine also shares how she got into this work and talks about working as a therapist. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode sponsor, the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UH has a phenomenal social work program that offers face-to-face master's and doctorate degrees, as well as an online and hybrid MSW. They offer one of the country's only political social work programs and an abolitionist-focused learning opportunity. Located in the heart of Houston, the program is guided by their bold vision to achieve social, racial, economic, and political justice, local to global. In the classroom and through research, they are committed to challenging systems and reimagining ways to achieve justice and liberation. In 2022, they will continue their ongoing series, Eyes on Abolition, that explores abolitionist practice and as a critical framework to bring about change and invite you to join them in April when they host Becoming Abolitionist's author, Derricka Purnell. Go to www.uh.edu forward slash social work to learn more. And now, the interview. Hey Jasmine, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. So excited to hear you talk about the work you're doing with your organization, Uncoke My Campus. And I'm excited to have learned about you all and have you on to share about this really important work. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So I think, you know, just to start out, maybe let folks know, you know, an overview of what you all do, and then we'll get into a number of the specifics. 
Yeah. So generally, Uncoke My Campus is a intervention or a disruption campaign um, that targets Charles Koch and his dark money network. Um, he is a really radical right-wing um, billionaire. Um, he has been characterized by historians as an oligarch, um, sort of like a corporate or oligarchy. And you might wonder why it matters within education, public education um, and higher education in particular. Well, uh, both uh, you know K through twelve as well as higher education are institutions that really help to preserve the possibility of a multiracial democracy. And Charles Koch, who is famous for being a climate denier, um, for stalling progress on voting rights and economic justice, um, and most recently um, helping fund the insurrection as well as COVID denial, utilizes his multi-million dollar nonprofit donations to universities to um, influence uh, both ideas and culture, as well as policy production. Um, most of the things that you um, are familiar with around legislation, well, they started at the side of the university, right? Like researchers and think tanks struggled through data and ideas, and then they made recommendations to elected officials and um, our you know, the, the highest courts in the land and, and uh, legislators in the land. And so through um, these think tanks that are most, you know, majority at the side of the university, the Koch network has been able to roll back economic freedom, um, propose regressive social policy, as well as deregulate the fossil fuels industries at the peril of our climate and our communities. So it's really, really important work. And um, I've been at it for uh, this is my fourth year now. Yeah, it's so important. And, you know, the folks who follow the podcast care about these issues, right? Like, People who listen to this podcast are already, um, or access this podcast through transcripts are already, you know, for the most part, really care about multiracial democracy and racial justice and social justice. And I think often though, we don't know, like you all peel it back and get back to like, okay, so we know there's voter rights and voter suppression going on in all these states, right? Or, um, passing legislation to make it harder and harder for people to vote, especially black people, right? And folks of color. So just on that issue, you know, let's peel it back of like, where does that begin? And how do these strategies happen that are funded by this Coke network? Yeah, so there are things that the, the average person who's just, you know, like, like me, like a, a working class mom of four, I don't, I didn't know before I got in this work, I didn't know what a think tank was. Um, but there are these things called think tanks. And there are these folks called lobbyists. And ultimately, with um, particularly after Citizens United, which was a ruling that made corporations into people, and really changed how much money could be spent within elections. Um, our current government construct is that whoever has the most money gets the most power. Um, and that's really where um, the crux of Charles Koch and his dark money network um, and their power brokering is. So why, why would they want to erode voting rights? Why would they attack communities of color from coming out and voting and governing? You know, we, we the people, uh, you know, are the people that the government should be answering to. Well, that's because the Koch network 
along with ALEC, which is American Legislative Exchange Council, which is sort of like their corporate business commerce wing of their network, um, they are disproportionately invested in the profits within their corporation and their shareholders' desires, right? So if we, the people on a grassroots level, put a candidate in office that wants to check um, the monopolies of corporations, that wants to check fossil fuel um, fuel production that's eroding our climate and killing our ecosystems. If we want to, I don't know, pass something like universal child care or a care credit, um, those things that we would want to invigorate our communities and give us the a, a chance to thrive as a society are in direct competition or an opposition to the earnings of corporate of corporations. Corporations depend on an extractive economic system to get their money. So at the heart of this really is a elite few um, utilizing greed and managing, um, throwing all of their material resources at ensuring they continue to have political control and social control. Um, and, and that really erodes democracy. That really harms our communities. It's, it's, it's creating a, a climate and ecosystems globally, particularly in the South, that aren't livable. Um, and that's why it's a worthwhile pursuit to resist and organize um, around these folks. And how do you do, so how do you do that? Because yeah, absolutely, we got we got to resist it. We got to organize. So how do you all do that? Um, so what we do is we track dark money. We start with investigate and audit. We're constantly watching where the Coke Network is spending its money, and we do this through um, public records requests. We do this through investigative journalism. Um, we do this through like whistleblowers and students that are constantly pressuring their universities to turn over donor agreements, um, and we start to. Track trace the money. And we demonstrate how um, there are strings attached. Like, for example, in 2018, we got access to donor agreements at George Mason University that dictated that the Charles Koch Foundation had the right to hire and fire faculty. They were allowed to determine what the curriculum was being taught. They were allowed to have access to graduate fellows that came into that program. Um, and of course, as you expect, there are uh, curriculum and program was about this far right-wing libertarian vision of the world. Um, and so after we connect with folks who are on the grassroots level who are impacted by these issues, we skill them up. We, we um, teach them about how to power map, how to base build, how to use communications as a tactic for storytelling and disrupting the disinformation cycle that is also a part of the Coke network. Um, and then we put them in coalition with folks who have been doing um, Coke and dark money um, um, resistance work for the last 15 plus years in various states um, and locations. And so that really has helped us build sort of this grassroots resistance against the Coke network further capturing these uh, democratic institutions. It seems like a lot of their effectiveness um, is based on the secrecy of how they operate. Yes, yes. Um, you know, that has always been the key. We have incredible folks like Jane Mayer, who has um, absolutely done us a service in producing the book Dark Money, um, helping us understand how these networks operate in the shadows. Um, we've got, you know, books like Shadow Network. We've got, of course, um, Nancy McLean's Democracy in Chains, talking about the long-term plan from the Koch Network. Um inspired by James Buchanan and Powell to um, really reshape our democracy. And um, 
you know, my grandmama always used to tell me that like the best disinfectant is some sunshine. And so that's really what it is, you know? Um, and, and, and as we and others who are part of this sort of like follow the money, um, check corporate uh, power movement, as we've been investigating and telling these stories and exposing them, they've only gotten more sophisticated around the disinformation um, and and basically being out to out being able to outpace some of us because they can buy news media, um, you know they can get they can hire a thousand journalists to tell their version of a story, um, and so as I'm sure so many are. Um, accustomed to now after COVID denialism and the insurrection, the coup that is still happening after the big lie, um, that they are doing less of the hiding and more of doing it out in plain sight and then creating disinformation about what they're actually doing. Yeah, you know, one of the campaigns that is really interesting to me that you're working on is what's happening in K through 12 around critical race theory and that uh, you know, because when you hear Uncoke My Campus, at first I was like, oh, like they do work at universities, which in colleges, which I know you do. But then when I started looking into more of the organization, I saw that you did all this work around K-12. Yes. And especially now, since there's been this very deliberate misinformation, it is totally rooted in misinformation because no school in K through 12 is teaching the complexities of critical race theory as like, which is this legal Mm-hmm. Um, theory, yeah. although we also, you know, use it in some of us also use it in social work too, because mm-hmm. it's branched out, right? So I'm really interested in that one and like the anti um sixteen nineteen project um yeah. backlash that's happening. I was kind of hoping you could speak on that and how you're, you know, organizing against it. Yeah. So our team back in the summer of 2021 started to see tiny, tiny little um, talking points emerge because again, we spend like, I I like to say that like we spend our days steeped in the toxic ways of Coke think tanks so other people don't have to. And so we're always surveilling their websites. We're always like going to their with zoom now they have so many like conferences and different press uh opportunities and so we'll go on and we'll listen and we'll watch like what are they doing what are they planning um and we started hearing um critical race theory and then we decided we'll audit um a select group of their think tanks and so we went through about 28 to 23 think tanks and saw on their sites that they had provided toolkits and talking points And then we're disseminating those to target Coke-funded elected officials on the state level. And then within a couple of months, we started seeing Fox News as well as other um, fake news sites that are some which are Coke-controlled or or Coke-owned, talking about critical race theory as a form of racism against white people. Um, and we knew we had to act. And so we published our report. We demonstrated how just a small group of Coke think tanks created this wave. Um, and then we also showed how many of the parent groups that were showing up to these key states, particularly in the South, where there's an ability to 
um, swing working class white folks toward, um, but more toward the left, started showing up at these school boards and creating this fake moral panic. Like actual like astroturf groups who had never lived in that area, did not have kids in the school district, but were showing up. And then of course, the news broke that Chris Rufo admitted that he saw this as a power issue for the radical right in the midterms and, and, and moving on. And then they means tested um, their theory in Virginia, which led to the Yunkin win, um, which was a big upset. And so this is a thing that they have been doing forever. They did it with diversity, equity, and inclusion during the Obama race. And they did it prior to that um, when there was traction, particularly in 2001, around climate. And they went to school board meetings and said, you can't teach our children about climate because you're giving them anxiety. And um, it was a whole... It was a whole moral panic that just didn't exist. Um, and so what we did after um, our report was we began to reach out to our partners like um, National Public uh, Education Association, um, like the Coalition for Public Schools, Save Our Schools Arizona, and provided political education, gave them our resource, um, and, and talked about how people can start pointing this moral panic, this new culture war, back to the Koch network. Because communities need to understand outside billionaire corporate influencers are creating this radicalization and polarization in our communities. It's not us, right? Before um, this culture war was manufactured in our communities, we were just trying to figure out how to survive COVID in the schools, right? Like we were just trying to figure out how to balance these, these multiple threats and crisis. Um, and ultimately, um, our organizing is about political education, informing folks and getting the word out. And so, of course, um, I've had multiple op-eds, one that was in The Nation um, called The Radical Capitalists Behind the Critical Race Fear, Charles Koch's public um, representative folks actually reached out to The Nation and tried to get them to take it down. The Nation said no. Here's all of her citations. It's all public information. And about a week after they refused to take it down and the, and the, and the article was going viral, um, Charles Koch Foundation and Stand Together um, issued a statement saying they did not support the banning of critical race theory. Um, to date, ALEC, which is, again, their corporate commerce for profit wing of what they do, has been proliferating model policy on the local and state level to ban critical race theory. Now, Coke Industries and their partners are major shareholders in ALEC. So again, another way that they're not hiding what they're doing, but they're using disinformation with journalism and earned media um, to really lie and sort of bait and switch um, folks their understanding of who's really behind all of this. It is wild because you see all these viral videos of, you know, white parents um, and even some parents of color um, mm -hmm. at the school board hearings, you know, and just, and also then they're like terrorizing school board members too. Mm -hmm. And people are leaving their positions and they're scared. Do you all like organize people to show up at these meet at these school board hearings as, or meetings as well and, you know, present an, a different view? Yes. So we have done several statements um, helping to like, build a coalition power with families who are attending these school board meetings and they need sort of like a national um, voice speaking to this. Um, we've, we've done a lot of virtual trainings for folks on how to do like a recruitment strategy. Um, we have... 
definitely amped up the amount of like scanning that we've done of media so that if we see that there's a new a new site where there's panic and the school board is about to be targeted, we can call on our coalition partners that are on the ground in those various cities and states and say, hey, this is about to come to your school board. Here's how you can um, counteract it. And here's how you can diffuse the really like polarizing um, situation. So yeah, we do that work, um, you know, with digital organizing, the limitations of COVID and having such a small team, it's really difficult, but we've, we've been rolling with what we have and we feel like we've been making an impact for sure. Yeah, it's so important to expose it. You know, I'm I'm in Florida and Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> you got DeSantis. We've got DeSantis, we've got anti CRT and now we've got this anti um LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. bill yeah. where like I don't even totally understand how this would even function, you know, where like you can't even talk about LGBTQ folks in schools like I am beside myself with it. You also have a Coke funded candidate who ran for um, president of of a university lost and now is trying to get DeSantis to uh, fast track him as a candidate. Um, You know, and both of those folks have ties to the Coke network and I'm happy to send you some information on that. But it's really, it's like, it's really like a hostile takeover on all fronts. And um, what is produced from the things that the Coke network invest in is this authoritarianism and this authoritarianism and fascism is a direct response to the fact that particularly in the last couple of years, folks have been able to see glimpses of having a multiracial feminist democracy. And they know that in a multiracial feminist democracy, it's not business as usual. Cisgender, wealthy, elite, white Christian men are not going to be on, quote, like the, the, the biggest recipients of that kind of world. And so really, they in their attempts to maintain the old world, the old way of doing things that is not serving all of us, but only serving a few of us, they're creating the conditions for this fascism. And it's, um, you know, I think in the United States, we have this um, belief of exceptionalism of like, this isn't the United States, how could this happen? Um, You know, but globally, when you when you think about it, anytime like a majority race or um, like ethno religious group begins to lose power, particularly when a democracy was attempted, it does devolve into this like authoritarian fascism, what no one expected was the massive amount of money that the Coke network, as well as other right-wing billionaires have been pouring into investing, um, not relinquishing their power, would fast-track the United States in this way. So would an overturning of Citizens United in and of itself, you know, put a huge block to what they're able to do? You know, I think there's a lot of folks, a lot of theorists um, and and um, scholars who say that it's too late to overturn Citizens United, that the damage has been done. Um, but I really feel that it would be a non-reformist reform, meaning that it would be an opportunity for us to really build power and check um, some corporations in some big ways. I also think that for the People Act, um, if we could get it through, would be another act of harm reduction while folks are doing um, systemic structural organizing and transformation work. Um, But yeah, I would love to see uh, Citizens United overturned in my lifetime. 
you know, something that I'm thinking about where, so we're recording this at the end of January. This is going to go live in February and, you know, Biden is going to be able to appoint, uh, nominate a Supreme Court justice and he's Mm -hmm. promised to nominate, you know, to appoint, to nominate a black woman. And just today, because this is like brand new, you know, I'm already seeing tons of right wing, um, uh, stuff about, you know, the whole qualifications issue and, you know, they're the ones making it about race because they've always had historically, right, like white men who that was their main qualification on as judges, right? Or they've been, they got, you know, uh, Barrett through, you know, in like 39 days after Ginsburg yeah, died. Yeah, we should, we, we should look at her qualifications. Right. So I'm, I was like, to me, it seems, you know, talking to you and thinking of these think tanks and this and coke money and this network like these talking points have been ready to go right yes yes yeah absolutely um you should check out the work of lisa graves um a a great um comrade and advisor to uncoke my campus and she's has led around coke work and alec work for a really long time and she's just like a vanguard um but she as well as uncoke and other folks um have been calling out how that Coke network has been court packing um, on every level, Coke, pro, like pro Coke um, judges to the point where they'll hold seminars for judges or folks who are on the track to become judges. Um, and there was a um, report that showed that after attending these seminars, they were harder on black and brown folks around criminalization. They were more lenient on fossil fuels, right? And so Gor- Amy Coney Barrett, Gorsuch, and oh, what's the other one that I've like pushed out of my mind because he was... So Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh. Yeah, sorry. We had actions against him for one of our students campaigns. And so I've just like erased him. Um, So all three of them are DeVos family Coke network um, picks for the Supreme Court. And it's no again, it's no accident that um, that the Coke network's rhetoric and the underbelly of its rhetoric is anti-Semitic and anti-black. And that's because (laughs) that's because understanding that those rising majorities, like people of color, folks who have experienced like genocide and um, dispossession, folks who have been enslaved for economic progress, like those stories and the rise of those folks go against like, the ultimate myth of the libertarian movement, which is meritocracy and individual responsibility, right? Um, and, and to your point, I was listening to CNN this morning while I was getting ready with my kiddos. And one of the, and a person who considers themselves liberal was commenting and they were like, look at this woman. She's a black woman. She's the daughter of slaves. And I just thought, how how interesting that like the neoliberal uh, cultural habits that are so deeply embedded in white supremacy is how you how you name and speak about a black woman and without naming her achievements, but you don't speak about like Kavanaugh or Gorsuch or Barrett that way. Like what would it look like if commentators had been like Neil Gorsuch, a candidate for the Supreme Court whose family built their wealth off of enslaving Africans, but we don't say that about white folks. Black people always have to be like, she's from the indigenous people who were on the trail of tears or, you know, she, she was part of the, the Haitian enslaved people. And that's not the full story of who we are. Um, but yeah, you're right. These people are going to dog whistle white supremacy and anti-blackness and misogynoir. 
um, because th these these women are not going to rep represent to them through their lens of white supremacy and white nationalism, um, qualified candidates, no matter what their credentialing is. Yeah, they're really masters at flipping the narrative and controlling the narrative in the sense that like the word indoctrination, right? That's one of their terms that they're using about critical race theory, right? It's like, this is indoctrinating our students to hate white people and to hate this country where it's like, mm -hmm. what have they been doing to indoctrinate? Like all, they're all about indoctrination. It's just, they're indoctrinating what they want people to believe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, to to Charles Koch's credit, one of the things he's always said because he sort of has this overlap in philosophy and so and like the sociology schools of thought is that like we're in a in a battle for ideas and um, you know but but the reality is for so many of us who go oh no this is just a policy fight this isn't a culture idea battle. Um, is that the culture wars on the right, we keep losing because we don't have sites of belonging um, because we're not willing to wage in. And we have this like, oh, particularly folks who identify as leftists of like, we have like this kind of like purity test where we don't engage in those kind of things. We're going to win in a fair way. Um, but the reality is we're all making culture. We're all creating behaviors and sites of belonging constantly. We just have to determine who gets to have a thriving generative existence in the kind of realities we're creating for ourselves? And so if indoctrination looks like children should have access to healthcare no matter their gender identity, children should have um, science-based sexual education and education on the climate reality, and we should teach factual history so that we don't repeat it and we can learn from our past, if that's the indoctrination that they're afraid of, it, it, it begs the question, what kind of world do they want? Well, we know what kind of world they want because anti-Semitism and, and Holocaust denialism is on the rise, right? Um, people are quoting MLK to MLK's daughter on Twitter and saying that MLK would be ashamed of her, right? It's these folks who have been in their homogenous bubbles and believe that hegemony is, is the thing that will save them and preserve their well-being. But the reality is the global majority has already begun to shift and we will continue to be the rising majority. And in a place in time where trans, black, southern girls with disabilities have what they need to thrive and have a meaningful life, that's actually the same world where white folks who don't share any of those characteristics can survive and thrive. It's not a limited world. It's an expansive, abundant world. Um, but because white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy limits the imagination so much, those folks can't conceive of themselves existing in that world. And so they're reacting from this place of spiritual, social, relational fear and retaliation, rather than figuring out how they might join with us to belong in this world where we have enough heat and co and cooling for everyone's homes and everyone has a home to live in and people have education and we're not killing our food systems and our, our animal relatives, right? Like, that's a beautiful version of the world. But what their corporate overlords are telling them it is, you know, like what the rhetoric that you hear, that they're all going to be put in internment camps with tags on their arms, like, you know, and, and that is how people have utilized anti-blackness and anti-Semitism to stoke this white anxiety and fear um, for centuries now. Yeah, they're, 
the stuff that's going on right now around like vaccines and masks and um, the right and folks like putting on like saying stuff like we're all Jews and wearing stars of David. I, like for me as a Jewish person, it's like it makes me physically sick when I see that stuff. Yeah. Um, Cause it's like, wow. Like now you want to be Jew. <laughs> like I, the whole thing is just like so insane to me. It's like hard to even comprehend that people are doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But there's clearly, you know, it, there's someone came up with that idea. Like it didn't right? like something's behind all that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Charles Koch in his PR tours around his book um, would quote Frederick Douglass. And said that the reason why Frederick Douglass was like so fantastic was because he was an entrepreneur who taught himself to read and write after he was released from enslavement so he could get a job and earn like a dollar a month. It's the myth of exceptionalism that hides enslavement and chattel slavery, right? It's like... <laughs> so for so for him, his interest in Frederick Douglass is to use him as an example around meritocracy or something like that? Yeah, meritocracy and Frederick pulled himself up by his bootstraps and so all other people can too because look at this. Um, wow. You know, but the reality is that like Frederick created a pathway for sure, but but the 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 gag here is that like Charles wants us to work. He wants us to like start new businesses and do all kinds of different things because ultimately it's working for the ultra wealthy elite, right? Like when we're investing in their version of the economy, they're benefiting off of our labor. So of course he's going to promote Latinx entrepreneurship or black people from urban areas who, you know, need to start up new businesses. Cause it all goes back to the same like um, commerce affiliations that, that he gets a dividend from. Um, but if we reimagine the con an economy, one that was rooted in care, one that was rooted in liberation and not oppression. Well, that's something that he's definitely been organizing against. And I think that's telling. Absolutely. Yeah. Could you actually just kind of summarize some of like the key um, issues that the Coke network, again, you know, I know you talked about in the beginning, but just kind of go over like, just so people can really, you know, hear that part of like these, like, cause, cause someone's going to find either one or multiple of those issues that they care about. So can you Mm kind of hit on what is like kind of like their key um, agenda, I guess, that through yeah. certain issues that they're working on right now? Yeah. Well, they work under an umbrella of privatization. So that's the first place that you start, corporate power and privatization. And then from there, um, they have done things like bolster the radical Christian right movements. Um, Think about folks that have opposed LGBTQIA marriage, um, trans bathroom bans, affirming health care for trans youth, um, trans youth participating in sports. They're behind that. Um, Housing, whenever the housing moratorium was happening so that no one could be evicted, the Coke network had their lobbyists pressure the lifting of that. And once it was lifted and people, particularly in the South, like through Texas, um, began to be evicted, they bought that property. They brought, bought up all of that land. Um, they're also buying public lands so that they can privatize and ensure that they can continue to operate. Um, our courts and our judicial 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 system, um, they've been reshaping them, gosh, for the last 10 years plus, stacking them with um, 
folks that are pro-corporate power and anti-people power. Um, in K-12 through education, in partnership with other billionaire donors, they have been resegregating schools by gutting public school funding and then proposing private charter schools. These private charter schools or even the ch school choice movement disproportionately keep out Black and Latinx folks. And on top of that, the curriculum that they provide is super regressive, right? It, like, it whitewashes history. It talks about enslavement and chattel slavery as a source of building the greatest economic system in the world. Um, it, it erases indigenous genocide um, and dispossession. Uh, goodness gracious, voting and electoral organizing, um, they've always been behind backing some of the most egregious candidates. I mean, DeVos, who just completely obliterated our education system during Trump's administration, is a part of the Cook Network. Um, so, so really, wherever you turn, they, like many wealthy people, have invested their money in multiple things. Um, their investments happen to be... Um, just really nefarious and pernicious ventures. Thank you for, you know, going over all that. It's, there's clearly, they're involved with a lot, uh, I, you know, almost any, um, you know, right wing type issue that we could think of They're They're probably somehow connected to it is what it is, what it sounds like. Yeah. You know, well, and I, and I want to be clear. Yes, it's a radical right oligarchy, but they also have like moderate dims, like pro corporate dims, like um, Cinema and Mansion um, have direct relationship to the Coke network. And guess what? They've held up some of the things that Biden promised the people. And when we voted for him in that fair election that, that we had, he had the you know, responsibility to deliver these promises and thinking that we have a majority of Dems, but it turns out the Coke affiliated, fo affiliated folks are keeping us from getting the things done that we really needed to get done for our communities, especially after surviving um, this continued pandemic. So cinema and uh, mansion are connected to Coke, the Coke, Coke funding. Yeah. 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 And cinema is actually a social worker and still teaches policy and has been censured by the az democrats i saw yeah which we're waiting on um the national association of social workers to actually do something um there's been a campaign and a petition um started by uh boston-based liberation health collective to put pressure on nasw so for social work folks listening you know we'll put a link to that in the notes as well as um some of the articles that you've um talked about i'll get those links from you and i'll put them in the note the show notes so people will have them so i want to you know you mentioned one thing about like you know you're a mom and and as you were living working raising your kids you didn't know what think tanks were and things like that you know which i don't think most of us do right till so how did you get into this work it was really serendipitous. I had um, been fired from NARAL Pro-Choice America as a digital organizing fellow. Um, I just didn't fit their white feminist lens of the world. And we kept trying to integrate racial justice into my digital organizing campaigns. And it just didn't go well. Um, and I was just burnt out with like the grass tops, nonprofit, like national sector of movement work. So I was like, I love comms, I love digital organizing. I'll just, I'll just do some consulting for a while. 
And I saw this RFP, this request for a proposal from um, a little student-led project called Uncoke My Campus. And I was like, I don't know who Charles Coke is, and I don't know what any of this stuff is about, but I'll just apply. And, you know, the vision of, not, of, of Uncoke at the time was around transparency and academic freedom. The co-founders, who were, were white folks, um, believed that if you could just tell the public that there were strings attached to donor agreements and you could get universities to no longer accept donor agreements that had strings attached, that it would equal justice. And um, so, you know, I, I dove into the history of Charles Koch and within two weeks of like reading all of the reports and the cited sources and doing a deep dive in the history, I was like, well, damn, I thought I was coming to do an easy job and just rest, but I happened upon the Death Star of the right. Like, <laughs> this is some real, real conspiracy that's happening. And um, I knew, you know, I'm a Virgo and I'm a very protective mom. And when I realized that a vast majority of the threats that my family had directly faced were produced by Coke or the entities that are associated with the Coke network, I was like, oh, well, this isn't this is like an avenging kind of moment. Um, so I did digital organizing for Uncoke for about nine months, and then the co-founders started having quite a bit of infighting, and as like young nonprofit projects do, some folks went their own ways, and um, the remaining co-founders voted that I step in as executive director. And so I've spent the last three, now going on my four years, um, revamping the strategy, um, re-evaluating the tactics, and really pivoting um, the uh, uncoke work to be um, both an investigative journalism slash base building slash organizing operation. Um, because we really want the work we do not just to be an announcement of the problem, but an opportunity for folks to really take um, take action and build shared power and solidarity around the problem. Um, we see ourselves as a disruption entity that puts up a good fight to block the right from further, a, further controlling and capturing higher education um, because it is a site of power. It is um, a democratic institution that can be reimagined and transformed for social good, um, even though no, you know, it's becoming increasingly corporate and private. Um, it's, we, we're not ready to give up on higher education and education in general. Um, and, and, you know, it says something that of all the places the Koch Network invests their money, they most heavily invest their money in education. And I think that's, you know, stems from their history of being the folks who resisted Brown versus Board of Education and school integration. And they understand that education, particularly public education, is a direct pathway to social and economic transformation. Thanks for sharing how you got into it. And yeah, absolutely. Like they know that the power of education, right? Otherwise they wouldn't be putting so much money and energy into it. You know, how, so where, where does your, like, where do you kind of pull strength from and, and kind of pull like your own thinking um, yeah. from? Well, I'm in deep relationship with a beautiful practice community um, of, you know, it's intergenerational and 10 days of every month we meet together virtually and um, engage in solidarity practice for care. 
Um, Bold, which is Black Organizing Leadership for Leadership and Dignity, um, Denise Perry, Alta Star. They, their wisdom and their teachings have bolstered me and taught me about new ways of being in the world. Um, you know, I look to visionary folks in the South, like Suzanne Farr, who has taught her work has taught me so much around the radical right, particularly the Christian right. Um, and then at the end of the day, you know, it's my black queer trans family. My daughter is about to be 15. She's a black trans girl. And just to ha- like live with her and see um, how she engages in self-determination and how she sees the world is always refreshing to me. Um, and, you know, outside of that, I cycle a lot. I used to play roller derby because hitting people, body checking people is like a very therapeutic practice I didn't know that I needed. And when all of that fails, I'm either like baking bread in the kitchen with my wife or like drinking a lot of gin. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I remember like when I was younger, like they'd actually have like roller derby on ESPN and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Late night. Bank track. Yeah. I'm, I was flat track and my roller derby name was Boombox. So oh, I love yeah. that. I love Boombox. That is a great name. Thanks for sharing, you know, that in, um, just about like your thinking and bold. And that's, that's amazing that you have that too, that you are part of that it just sounds phenomenal. Yeah. You know, we, um, the, the beauty is, and I think this is often lost in folks that are part of social change, um, movements or structures that have been captured by like the nonprofit industrial complex is we have generations and generations of living elders who were doing this work before you got like a 501c3 status to do this work, right? Like they were doing all kinds of dope community work. Um, and you know, actually one thing that I haven't shared with you is my original background is in communications and psychology. And, um, I had a private practice as a licensed therapist and it just got so difficult for me because I'm a doer and a systems thinker to constantly have my clients come in and we would get them to, I would watch them do this massive amount of work and transformation, get them to a place where they could go out feeling some, rehabilitation and recovery from their suffering, much of which was an actually like a product of systemic oppression and not from any personal failing. And then they'd come back in six months re-injured by the same systems. And so I was like, okay, cool. I'll be a therapist on the weekend and then I'll be a systems change organizer activist, you know, Monday through Friday. Um, And that's what I've been doing, right? Like, would, would we have the, the rate of maternal mental health, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders if we had paid leave and folks birthing folks could stay with their babies and didn't have to dump them off at a daycare? And there's no disrespect to those who choose to do that. But there's just so many variables to like our well-being and our determinants of health that we're not naming are directly a result of capitalism, patriarchy, and white supremacy. And until we really come into conflict with those structures and um, start building new ways of being in community, we're going to have like soaring mental health pathology and struggles. Um, And I say that as someone who has post-traumatic stress disorder and, you know, multiple suicide survivor and have my own share of psychopathology. So. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing all that. Um, And that's something a lot of guests of mine have touched on, you know, over a number of different episodes of like, you know, we can't CBT our way out of yep. you know, systemic oppression. It doesn't work that way. Um, 
So that, and that's, you know, and that's real. And we pathologize people when the pathology is really the systemic pathology, you know? Yeah, which is the trap of the narrative, the neoliberal um, society that we're living in, right? It focuses on like, it's the individual and it's the individual. But the reality is like, our communities are unwell. Like there's a collective unwellness. Um, and you know, there's some nuance around like madness and disability that I just want to hold in tension that we're not erasing that, that some of us just like, that's who we are as people. And it's not necessarily a result of injury, or even if it is a result of like psychic or physiological injury, it's still valid. Um, you don't have to be like sane to count. Um, but, but Lord have mercy. I would love to see a world where, um, you know, we start with care and healing and we have a beloved state that really works for us and not war and, and corporate consumption. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's the right term, but like, cause I know there's like a lot of debate about this, but, um, to me, white supremacy seems pathological, um, you know, to me, and I know other people don't like to say, you know, don't like it sometimes when people say like racism is a disease and things like that. Mm. Um, and I, and I get that. I get that. But there's, it's, it's an irrational belief to believe that a group of people because of the color of their skin are superior to another group. I mean, that's just an irrational belief yeah. to have. So to me, yeah. there's a pathology there, which then inf in, inflicts this harm on everybody. Yeah, I was reading a case study a couple of weeks ago that talked about um, um, sociopathy and borderline issues as it relates to um, the population of like white young people in the millennial generation who were raised underneath um, evangelical movements. And um, I think that piece was sort of hitting on what you're talking about, right? Like, we know it's a lie. Those of us who've seen behind the curtain of white supremacy absolutely know it's a lie. And when we don't live into that world, we experience a form of liberation and freedom that ultimately helps us reorient our sense of um, like our like our psychosocial development of identity. Um, but I, I understand folks' critique of it, but I also absolutely see where you're coming from, that it is a, a collective working delusion. Um, where many people are constructing these archetypes of their identity that's based in violence, subjugation, um, and domination. And anytime you're in those spaces, it's, it is inherently like soul draining. It's death making. Um, and we as organic, you know, relatives to this earth are not suited for like death making work. Um, it's just not, it's just not how we, how we thrive in community. Uh, adversely, I think the folks that push back against the disease and pathologizing of it feel uncomfortable, not that I can speak for them, you know, in mass, but I think some of the points that emerge from their critiques of that approach, that analysis, is that there it's it's also structural and institutional yeah, right 100% and and so making a disease sort of makes it hard to make the case for abolishing the systemic institutional and structural components of it but on an interpersonal level yes i mean i think that i've had folks that came into my office and were seeking help for all kinds of things and i use narrative therapy approach as my um, theoretical orientation and we talk about identity and for white 
folks who were steeped and like fully bought into white identity, their development of who they are as people is just, it's just, it's not there. Mm -hmm. It's not there. And we go through sort of like this deconstructing process as a part of their work in, in therapy session. And then building themselves up outside of this dominant narrative of like, you're exceptional and you're the most respectable and you're good and, and you know, you should strive for perfectionism and avoid conflict and it has to be either or. And then their anxiety dissipates and then, you know, they can sleep better um, and they have less intrusive thoughts and self-harm because the rigidity and the binary nature and the limiting imagination of white supremacy it, it it shaves off whole people and kind of puts them in the box. And that includes folks who come from Euro backgrounds who have white skin, right? It includes those people. So I also come from the camp that doesn't, you know, folks have a lot of critiques for, but I come from the camp of people that say that white supremacy actually also harms white people intensely and directly um, because it, it dehumanizes them and it assigns them de facto to a legacy of violence and domination. Totally. And to be considered white, there's like so much that has to be that pe that groups have given up, you know, mm -hmm. like as a Jewish person, right? Like my at one point, we weren't those of us who get to be considered mm -hmm. white because not right. There's lots of Jews of color, yeah. especially mm -hmm. worldwide. But like, what did we give up? Like I, my parents, my grandparents still spoke some Yiddish, but like they didn't pass it on. And that's like assimilation. Yeah. That was like to yeah. assimilate, you know? Just that's a small example, but it's a it is a big one too. Actually, with language is powerful. So absolutely, but you see right now in this political moment how white supremacy and agents of white supremacy who are like, "Come over here, Jews or white Latinx folks, mm -hmm. you're white." Um, will immediately, right? Like they didn't care if it was the white Latinx folks that they were putting in cages at the border. They don't care if it's Jewish folks who are now like anti-Semitic flyers being passed and the Holocaust denial is being codified in school board meetings. So really white, white supremacy will possess and then dispossess depending on power. And, and so it's really on all of us, those who, um, you know, I can't move in and out of whiteness. I'm, I've been, I've been black my whole life, but folks like you, um, who could be maybe assigned as white and build power is like, well, actually, if I'm going to be a white person, I'm going to use it to disrupt this system. I'm going to use it to um, shift power. And I'm going to demonstrate a new identity of, well, my whiteness can look like abolishing white supremacy. My whiteness can look like co-conspirating toward justice. So you have the opportunity to create new identities, but like, don't take the bait. Like there's no, your, your enemy doesn't give you gifts and white supremacy is an enemy to all of us. Like if you get something from white supremacy, that's because later they're going to call on you to take the pound of flesh. Um, and sometimes it's more than a pound of flesh. It's your life or your family or you're, you're the people you come from being decimated. And so it's not worth the trade-off. Yeah, that was, I really like how you said that. You know, um, there was this journal called Race Trader. Um, oh, yeah. By yeah. Noel Ignatiev, um, and who passed away, I think, last year um, or the year before. And their, you know, kind of like main line was treason to whiteness is loyalty to humanity. And I always yeah. liked that a lot, that line. Yeah, yeah. Check out Dr. Barner Hesse. He's got like the eight white identities. 
um, you know, moving from like allied to like white abolitionists. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he puts it on a spectrum of white ally who like acknowledges white supremacy, but still fully benefits and does the performance of justice, but it doesn't cost them anything. Moving all the way down to the white abolitionist is like, no, whiteness is a violent construct in this current iteration of society and we're going to abolish it. 100%. So Jasmine, if folks, you know, want to get involved with the work you're doing, how can they, how can they support your work and get involved? Well, goodness, we are actually launching a brand new project that would be perfect for any of the folks who um, feel that they're in alignment. So of course, Uncoke My Campus is always going to be a student-led project. It's always going to be in universities. But we knew in this moment with like the threat to realizing democracy and the growing fascism, we needed to build out a coalition. Um, And so we launched a project called the Common Good Generation. And the Common Good Generation is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational coalition um, that is going to really be demonstrating um, how we transform and reimagine democratic institutions. And so it's less of a disruption intervention campaign, which is what Uncoke is, and it's more of a cultural organizing, base building campaign. And so um, we're going to start bringing people in, encouraging people wherever they're at to start to launch a common good generation chapter and come organize and build with us. Um, Because when we think about what we're going to be facing in the next two to six years, it's intense. And we need to be sitting in intergeneration wisdom circles and learning from our elders. We need to be thinking about how do we not just complain about the things that we don't like? How do we build things that are generative um, and that are the futures that we want? And so this will be a site of experimentation. So yeah, check us out, thecommongoodgeneration.org, or um, you can drop me a line at jasmine at uncokemycampus.org. And we are looking for volunteers and paid organizers and folks who want to conspire with us to really reimagine how we can be in community. That's awesome. Yeah, I hope some folks who are checking out the podcast will um, take you up on that and get involved. And I just want to thank you again for coming on here and really thank you for doing the work. Yep. Agitate, organize. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. Thank you.